0: Good morning, church. It's on the screen. I invite all of you to open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 17. We will conclude in chapter 2, verse 5. If you're using the Red Pew Bible, that's page 1131 in the Red Pew Bible. That'll be in the New Testament portion of your Bibles. And by the way, if you do not own a physical copy of a Bible, feel free to take that one home with you, that Red Pew Bible. We want everyone who can have the Word of God hope you're all doing well. Sounds like it. Thanks for encouraging me while singing in song. Uh, We're blessed with tremendous singing here, worshiping God and edifying one another. This is the last sermon concluding the series that Nate, John, and George and I have been going through, and that has been seeing God through Jesus. Uh, George pointed out Jesus is God. He is the I am. Uh, He's not only prophesied of in the Old Testament, he shows up in the Old Testament. He is God's messenger. We've seen Jesus and God through their grace, their glory, his holiness as king, and yet he came here to live such a life and die for us. We see God, obviously, through the love of Jesus. We've seen all about that, how he left heaven's Throne. We've seen God through the cup that Jesus drank, bearing the wrath of God. We've seen God in the Lamb, Jesus, the one who was killed. And all those sermons and ideas and texts that we've come through, they all kind of come back in theme and in awe of the cross. That's where all this leads us to. When we see God through Jesus, we see him most clearly at the cross. What we've sung together this morning at the cross and what we're going to read in our text and what I'm going to say about the cross and its value and its preciousness is not going to go home to you in a few minutes as you go to lunch. If you do not realize or if you do feel pretty good about yourself, right, the message of the cross is not going to hit home for me or for you if we think we are so great. I deserve. I deserve each breath, meal, life, church, family. I deserve. I deserve. I deserve. That's our cultural mindset just on physical blessings. You read scripture and the messages of sinners. You and I don't deserve anything but hell. And that's something our flesh does not want to hear. You go read Romans 1, 2, or 3. Now, if you don't believe that, If you don't believe that's what we deserve, the text, the cross, the songs we sing is just not going to stick. You're just not going to see the love of God if you believe I deserve. So for your whole life and this lesson and our songs, my hope and prayer for all of us is that the weight of our own sin would crush us so that we could cherish the cross. I won't cherish the cross unless I see my status before God. Because as we're going to read, the cross is foolishness and a stumbling block to those who feel pretty good about themselves, who don't feel like they need the cross, who don't feel like they need the love of God. I deserve all that I have in my life. Deserve, deserve, deserve. And if that's you and it has been me and will be us sometimes subconsciously, I hope that we would see God for all he is, starting with his love, his worth, his holiness, his purity, his beauty. What does God deserve? Infinite worship, infinite praise, infinite obedience, infinite love, infinite attention, infinite allegiance. And what do we give God so often? Little bits and pieces here and there. Maybe it's the verse on your iPhone, it's the prayer at supper. For many of us, Sunday morning at times in our life is all I give to God. And how does that happen? Because we think much of self. From my trials to my triumphs, it's much of me. And we don't see him. We don't see God. And for all his worth, and for all his love for us, we will see what God deserves. What does God deserve? There's this infinite gap between God and me. I don't feel Him. I don't see Him. And we're going to hear all this talk about the cross being the central piece of the gospel and how all boasting must come to our Lord and it must come in that way through the cross of our Lord. Realize you and I deserve nothing from God but judgments because He's so infinitely great and we've all sinned against this infinite God. You've ignored Him. We've neglected Him. We've defied Him so consistently in our lives. You and I come nowhere near the bottom of the barrel to give Him what He deserves. That's where we are. And yet, we boast in the Lord because He has still loved us he has come in the flesh by sending his son he's covered our sin he is a righteousness for us so anytime we taste grace not just salvation if i don't deserve salvation i don't deserve to breathe anytime i taste mercy and grace from god it must be a cross issue This is where everything was purchased for us. Jesus died to purchase everything good in our lives and everything painful that will be turned for good in our lives. We will not see the love of God until we realize what he's done for us and who we actually are. We're looking at the cross we proclaim. It is the power of God. I hope you're with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, as we begin in verse 17. This is the message that Paul is going to be preaching to us from this letter to the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth, as a lot of you know, they're kind of famous for having a lot of problems. Right now, they're bragging about who baptized them. They're ultimately accounting salvation to Cephas, or to Paul, or to Apollos, and Paul's saying, I'm not the one who died for you. Christ is the one who died for you, you're baptized into him, no one else, and that brings us to our first verse. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. I think in the cultural context, and a Greco-Roman society, you think eloquent wisdom is you probably in their world you think the art of persuasion and rhetoric, that's what the Greeks are known for, it's influenced our culture so much today in a large city like Corinth, this would be the highest of intellect, rhetoric skills, speech and debate. Uh, Paul, he's not really known for being a great public speaker as we'll see, and don't get me wrong, he's a very educated man, he's educated in the law of Moses, Paul says, I didn't come with this kind of fancy rhetoric, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Remember our word power. Paul's saying if the credit for Christ's saving work is given to him or anyone else, the power of the gospel is nullified. It's, it's worthless. The purpose of the gospel is to do what the Corinthians and what you and I cannot do, and that is to free us from sin and put us in a right standing before God. The gospel, as Paul is going to continue to kind of reframe, the gospel doesn't need professional speakers. The gospel, by its own content, without eloquent speech, can convict sinners and bring people to God because salvation is a work of God. His word and his spirit are at work. What is central to the gospel message of Paul? The cross of Christ in its power. Look at verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly, you could say foolishness, to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross is foolishness. You very quickly think about the message of a random Jewish man from a janky town no one cared about in Nazareth, who's a lowly carpenter, who gets himself crucified, and that's how people are forgiven of sin. That was foolishness to Paul's world then, just as it is foolishness to many people in our world today. And yet, that's where Paul focuses. The cross, the foolish part of the story. When the Romans used crucifixion, It was for the worst of criminals to torture, to humiliate them, and to scare the public to stay in line. It was the crudest and cruelest of punishments, and you and I talk about it today like it's no big deal because we're so far removed from the horror of crucifixion if you were, especially if you were a Jewish person, you probably knew of someone who was crucified and killed in such a way. The cross was on a logo, it wasn't jewelry they wore, it wasn't on their Bible, it wasn't decor, it was a cruel torture device that led to death. I think this is off the top of my head, I think it wasn't until like the 5th century AD or maybe the 6th, something like that, until the cross was portrayed in art, because it was so horrific to people and they had seen it And on top of the cross being foolishness, the Greco-Roman idea, the Greeks and their gods are far above this disgusting physical world. A God would never come here. If Jesus were so great, he would never be treated the way that he was. That's how they viewed their gods. Their gods would never do such a thing. And if you're a Jewish person, okay, if you're not a Greek, um, the fact that this Jesus guy was hung on a tree, a cross, a hanged man... Is cursed by God. It's foolishness to both Jews and Greeks. And yet the cross, it is the power of God. To those of us who've seen true reality, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Paul's quoting Isaiah 29 14. He's contrasting God's wisdom from man's wisdom. God has always operated in such a way to flip the tables, to reverse the roles, to bring down the arrogance and the powerful. And that's why Paul says in verse 20, Where is the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of of the world. Again, I think of the one who's wise. I'm thinking of someone like a Greek philosopher, perhaps, someone who is highly regarded for persuasive speech and analytical skill. A scribe, that's a Jewish individual, right? Jesus runs into the scribes all the time in his earthly ministry. A scribe is someone who's an expert in the law of Moses. They know their scriptures, and yet many of them deny Jesus as Messiah, The debater, right? The one who's trained in public speaking and speech and debate. Um, that's what the Corinthians, that's what they expect of Paul, the apostle. Paul's really not about that life. Like I said, he's not great at public speaking. And yet, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly or foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. Man's wisdom has not brought about the knowledge of God, so it pleased God to kind of like subvert expectations to save the world. And Paul's actually here using rhetoric to mock his opponents who oppose his teachings because Probably the Corinthians to hear Paul say it's folly or foolishness of what he preaches, that might be confusing to the Corinthians, because it was through Paul's preaching that the Corinthians came to believe in Christ. Acts chapter 18, the very beginning at least, has Paul coming to Corinth. Acts eighteen eight. Many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, right, he's preaching, believed and were baptized. So, if you're reading this letter and you're the church at Corinth, you might be thinking, How's the preaching of the cross, Paul? Foolishness. Are you calling us fools? We believe your message. Paul clarifies in verse 22 for jews demand signs and greeks seek wisdom i've got a handful of verses on the screen but to the jews miracles are a sign of legitimacy and authority from god those verses on the screen is again and again the religious leaders come to jesus and they say give us a sign from heaven and often that's you know very ironic because they've seen Jesus do signs already. Or you know, I was just having a study this week with someone and we were pointing out that Jesus does a sign and they say, Well, it's by Beelzebub he does this. Give us a sign from heaven. Like this is what Jesus runs into all the time. The Greeks Right? They seek wisdom. That's what they're known for today, their philosophy and culture and education. Uh, Acts 17.21, Luke records when Paul's preaching out uh, in Mars Hill and all that, that all the Athenians who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Acts 17.21, right? the Greeks, their world, they're the founders of philosophy. Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, all these guys are from this culture. This is the history behind the people that Paul is preaching Christ crucified to. And these guys have influenced our nation today in so many ways. Uh, they were pretty smart guys. And the Greco Roman world, the Greeks, they loved philosophy and wisdom so much. Uh, you know, they'd worship gods and goddesses like Athena, who was the goddess of wisdom. That's her temple uh, up there on the screen. Apparently, Nate's been to some of these locations, really envy Nate. Um, but this is the world that Paul's in. All the gods and philosophy and ideas that the Greco-Roman world has. And God's wisdom then, the same today, very often runs counter to the world's. What is God's wisdom? Verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. It's foolishness to the Gentiles. It's offensive and a stumbling block to the Hebrews. The message of a crucified Messiah would have offended the Jewish people, right? Again, Deuteronomy 21. Why would the Messiah be cursed by God? The common theory in their day, in Jesus' day, is that the Messiah would be a great warrior, be like David, reset up this physical kingdom right away, right now, in Jerusalem. Why would God kill the Christ, the Messiah, It's offensive to the Jewish people. It doesn't make any sense to them. And this message is foolishness to the Gentiles. We've mentioned crucifixions for criminals. Roman citizens are not crucified, right? Paul in history is likely beheaded. Peter was crucified. He's not a Roman citizen. It's for Jews, right? People we've occupied. That's who you crucify. Gods don't come in the flesh. If you're a Gentile, they don't do that. This world's icky. You don't come here. And if Jesus is some sort of deity why would he be treated in such a way? It's foolishness And the mindset of a pagan Gentile, Greek, Roman, all alike. Makes no sense to them. Uh, if you listen to our podcast about the resurrection of Jesus, if the early Christians and disciples and apostles are trying to gain a following of people, they're doing a really bad job at presenting a really easy to accept gospel message. They're offending the Jewish people, the Messiah was killed. And they're offending the Gentiles. They're not doing a good job starting up a new religion or culture, whatever you want to call it, because they're offending everyone with the message, and they suffer greatly for it. But to those who are called, both these groups are called, Jews and Greeks, those who think it's foolishness, those who find it offensive, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. How does the crucifixion of Jesus reveal the power of God? Well, it's God's power to save us, not only from sin, but also death. God can redeem the seemingly unredeemable. That's kind of a huge theme in the entirety of the Bible. From Adam and Eve sinning in the presence of the Lord God. He's saying, I'm, I'm going to redeem them. To the story of the Exodus. Israel, 400 years in slavery, God redeems them. Even when they sin and the nation of Judah is kicked out to Babylon, God says, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to redeem you. That's the theme in Scripture. God redeems us. Uh, The situation of Jesus, crucified and killed, God raised him up and redeemed his son. And Christ, as the power of God, would also challenge the power of Rome or the power of mankind Right? As we've said, the cross was a symbol of power and might from the Roman Empire, and God says, you're not in control. I'm the one who's sovereign. It made me think of Genesis 50 verse 20. Remember that story after Joseph was sold into slavery? He becomes second in charge only after Pharaoh, and Joseph told his brothers, hey, what you meant for evil, which is what the Jews and the Romans meant for the crucifixion of Jesus, Joseph says God meant for good. That God is sovereign. and will use anything for his good will. And obviously Christ is not in the grave. I mean, Paul's going to talk about that later in this letter in 1st Cor 15. That this is the power of God. Christ crucified. All of it points back to his power. And not only that, Paul said Christ is the wisdom of God. It's the paradoxical plan. It requires death to defeat death. Now, this is why no one really saw this coming. That's why some people call it the messianic secret. Also, Jesus being the wisdom of God takes us back to the Proverbs, the proverbial concept where personified wisdom is God's agent of creation. Uh, you think of like John 1, like the, Logos, the word is with God and was God and he creates all things. Paul says that essentially in Colossians 1 himself, that Jesus created all things. Seen and unseen, Christ, the one crucified, is very much so the wisdom of God, from as the creator to the power of the cross itself. And it's amazing that it's the creator who came to earth, and the creator who allowed his creation to kill him. That's verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is is stronger than men. God's so-called foolishness is sending his son of the world to die in such a way for enemies, and that makes our wisdom, you know, makes us look like incoherent babblers. Uh, God's weakness is Jesus in the flesh and the frailty of human flesh to die for us. That makes our strength really look decrepit. God has turned things upside down. He does not think selfishly, like we do in our flesh and in our sin. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Consider your calling. God's called you. He's called all of us to accept the work of Jesus at the cross. And he goes in to tell him, according to worldly standards, most of you guys want that much. Because again... In the first century Greco-Roman world, those who were called to any kind of salvation with any kind of God were probably wealthy or of nobility or both. The average Joe is not receiving any kind of spiritual bliss, most likely in the Greco-Roman mindset, and Paul's reminding him God has indeed died for everyone, not just those at the top of the food chain. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He's really hammering home the weakness and humility of Jesus and how this looks like foolishness to unbelievers. Shaming the strong, the nobility, those of great education and wealth, those philosophical debaters who probably viewed themselves better than the commoner because of their education, because of their money, because of their power. Paul's breaking all this down. He probably deals with this within the church of Corinth itself. If you, Oh, I should have put that on the screen. 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen 17 through 31 or 2 at the end of that. We're at the Lord's Supper. Remember, some people are eating before others come. That might be the situation as well, where the powerful think they're better uh, than the rest. Even in the church, that may have been a problem. Uh, verse 28. God shows what is low and despised in the world, Even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. He chose what is low. God chose what is despised in the world. We've hit some of these ideas, but think what did God choose to do? He sent Jesus into an unmarried teenage girl. That was going to cause Joseph problems. That was a miracle, his virgin birth of the Holy Spirit. But that caused Joseph problems. There probably was some gossip about her. I'm not sure. And he's born in the frailty as a mere man, he's, he's a man. Jesus from an unimportant town, right? John one forty six. can anything good come from Nazareth? Uh, very poor parents, Luke 2, they offer the dove. They, they can't afford to offer much to God. They're poor. And by the way, the Jewish people are oppressed. They're under Roman occupation. And then when Jesus becomes adult, you're like, okay, now is he going to be the powerful king with all the riches and glory? No, the Son of Man, Luke 9.58, had nowhere to lay his head. And as we've been talking about, as Paul's talking about, he's killed. In the most horrific way. That does not sound like the image of a triumphant God at all. If God's going to come to the world, this is not how you and I would pick it in our flesh. This is not how you're going to do it. This is why it's foolishness and a stumbling block to people. God chose what it despised. The point is when God came in the flesh, when he sent his son, he came to save sinners, that's us, and to associate with the lowly, with the poor, the needy, with the outcasts, with the humble. God then and now is destroying earthly wisdom, earthly pride, earthly riches. God does not value people based on their status and wealth and education. Everyone's made in his image. And even though all of us have sinned, like where I began in the lesson, God loves everyone. That is the message Paul is getting across. And that's why verse 29 says this, so that no human being might boast and the presence of God, in the specific Corinthian context, you go check out chapter 12 and 14 of this book of this letter, they might be boasting in their spiritual gifts or in their own public speaking and rhetoric. They seem to be boasting in that. And Paul's saying, "No, boast, not in that. Why would you depend on yourself? Depend on Christ. Depend on God, the cross, not your gifts, not your abilities besides. Who's the one who gave you your gifts and abilities? I mean, that principle is exactly the same today. And Paul says, yeah, don't be boasting the presence of God. Who do you think you are? What does Paul say to in? Look at verse 30. Because of him, not you, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Jesus has become all these things to us out of the love of God, despite our sin. I I want to look at these things. Jesus became to us the wisdom of God. His teachings, his life, death, and resurrection brings us salvation. He is the way of He is the truth. He is the life. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. Jesus has become to us righteousness. You read in prophets like Jeremiah 23 or 33 that one day people will say, Yahweh is our righteousness. Um, 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake God made Jesus to, who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or Philippians 3.9, we need to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He's become our righteousness. And Jesus has become our sanctification. I read in a commentary, it's on the screen, I thought was a really good definition of sanctification. They said sanctification is submission to righteousness. I find that as a really good definition. This is the lifestyle of becoming more and more and more like Christ. It's a life of growth. Uh, Romans 8.29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's the lifestyle and the growth as a Christian. And Jesus, of course, became to us redemption. He paid the price and bore the weight of sin that you and I deserve. That's where we began. And yet he is our Redeemer. Uh, and yet, like you read Romans eight eleven, if the spirit of Jesus, of him, actually of God, who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Jesus was redeemed out of the grave because he was innocent. Or Galatians three thirteen, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, curse is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Christ redeemed us from the curse. He is the wisdom of God. He is our righteousness. He's our sanctification. I want to be like him, and he is our redemption. Now, in forgiveness of sins, and even in the future, at the resurrection. And that's why Paul says, if you're going to boast, be careful how and in whom you're boasting in. That's verse 31. So that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast, in the Lord, he's paraphrasing Jeremiah 9.24. By the way, in Jeremiah 9, if you go look in your English Bibles, that's a capital all the way across the board, L-O-R-D, boasting Yahweh. This, I mean, Jesus, or Paul does this all the time with Jesus, where he'll blur passages with Yahweh with Jesus. That's a big message that he's sending us. You better be boasting in the Lord. We never should, we do, but we never should boast in ourselves. He says, boast in the Lord. Why? Well, the context, what has the Lord done? He sent his son. He's died for you. He's redeemed you. And that's where I kind of started with my, with my thoughts being poured out there that what I meant by everything we boast in must be a boasting in the Lord as a boasting in the cross. Uh, Paul puts it another way in Galatians 6.14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Jordan read for us Galatians 6, 1 through 10 where it talks about, hey, do good to everyone, especially the household of faith, and yet even when we do good and righteousness, where do we boast? In the cross. In our Lord. That's why I said, any... Peace of mercy, blessings, and grace must take us back to the cross. Only in the Lord. All boasting comes to the cross because we deserve nothing. Right? So the next time you thank God for your meal or you thank God for Him saving you, it should be a boasting in the cross and in our God and Lord. Alright, let's begin to wrap up In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, just verses 1 through 5. First one, Paul says, And I, when I came to you, Acts 18 is when Paul came to Corinth, Brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Okay, He said that back in chapter 1, verse 17. Uh, Testimony of God, remember, we're talking about the crucifixion of Jesus, the redemptive work of Christ, That's the testimony of God here in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. And Paul, as he says later in this book, he's being all things to all people because he's using rhetorical speech now to represent the gospel. He's talking to the church. Verse 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except, right, I got two things. Number one, Jesus Christ. Number two, and Him crucified. This is, is the heart of the gospel to Paul, the gospel of inspired scripture, and therefore this needs to be the heart of the gospel to us today. It's the same message today. What is the gospel according to Paul? Jesus Christ, who is the person of Jesus, the son of God, God in the flesh? Lots of those passages on the screen are passages that Paul said himself, uh, Colossians 2.9 is a good example of that for in Jesus the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily he is the son of God he is God in the flesh and remember Christ is not a last name it's a title Christ Christos or Messiah anointed one he is the Messiah of all the law and the prophets what you and I know as the Old Testament and the crucifixion what's the point of the crucifixion what Paul says is that he was crucified for our sins 1 Corinthians 15:3 Paul tells him that's later in the book we're looking at right now for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins that's what's first importance and it's in accordance with the scriptures so this is the message that Paul has Jesus is God in the flesh he's the Son of God. Jesus is the Messiah of Scripture, and he died. He was crucified for our sins. Same message you and I must deliver to people today. Same message. And yet, look at verse 3. How did Paul deliver this message in verse 3? He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. I don't know about you, but like, again, like Acts 17 at Mars Hill. And, you know, I picture Paul coming into the synagogue and places and saying, you know, kind of like a hear ye, hear ye, the king says you've sinned against me, but you will be forgiven if you accept my son. Like, you kind of picture just mighty preaching. And that's sometimes the case for Paul. But here he says, I came weak. I was scared. I was Trembling, much trembling. Paul, I thought you said in Romans that we were not given a spirit of fear. What is this? He's probably contrasting himself with the professional public speakers around him. Um, I've been talking about his public speaking skills, but 2 Corinthians 10.10, this is Paul talking about himself. He says, they say his, Paul's letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak. And his speech of no account. Paul's weak. I wonder if he had a bodily ailment. Maybe that's the idea in, think, 2 Cor 12 or the thorn in the flesh. I'm not sure. But his speech is of no account. And Paul's saying, yeah, I came to you weak in fear and much trembling. Strength is shown in our weakness. God's strength is shown in our weakness. Paul didn't come to Corinth with some cocky aroma about him. There's no swagger and vanity in Paul. There's fear, right? He didn't come high and mighty. He comes in meekness. There's real, genuine trembling because of his inadequacy, because it was so great, and the stakes are so high, and the dangers are so real, Paul. You know his life. Beaten and flogged and stoned and causing riots and arrested all the time. He great fear and trembling. Verse 4, my speech, my message, were not in plausible words of wisdom. He's said this twice, now three times, basically. I didn't come with the rhetoric skills of the Greco-Roman world, but I came in demonstration of the Spirit, that's capital S, of the Spirit and of power. Paul isn't interested in seeing people come to Christ because of his own persuasiveness. You and I should feel the same. He's not interested in that. Paul wants to see God through the Spirit working. He wants to see people come to Christ because of the gospel message. So that, verse 5, your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He's explaining, here's why my approach works, why it's different from the professional speakers of your day. He wants the Corinthians, God wants us to rely solely on him, on Christ, not in human persuasiveness, not in human wisdom, not in human abilities. God wants us to rely on him alone. Now, you can't help but notice, the last things we'll pretty much say here, is he says he came in demonstration of the Holy Spirit, right? capital S, of power, so that their faith would rest in the power of God. What is the Spirit? What is the power here? As some commentaries I read said, it's miracles. Paul worked miracles. Um, that seems to be happening at that day and age in the church at Corinth. Um, I really do not think that's what Paul has in mind here at all. I don't think that's what we're talking about, because as hopefully it's been obvious enough. Where else in our text have we seen the word power used by the Apostle? All it was the first verse we looked at. 1 Corinthians 117. And he did come with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The power is the gospel message. It's the cross. It's Christ and Him crucified. That's the message. Again, we read it. If you skip down to chapter 1, 23, and 4, we preach Christ crucified, and that is the wisdom, and that is the power of God. The cross. That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about when he gets to the end of chapter 2, or the end of our lesson, verses 4 and 5 of 1 Corinthians 2. That the demonstration of the Holy Spirit and the power of God is Christ crucified. That means this Spirit and this power is doing the same work today. It's the same message today as it was in the days of of Paul. This is the heart of the gospel, Jesus Christ and him crucified. The apostle Paul, myself, the leadership of this church would not want anyone to place their faith in the eloquence of a leader, speaker, or preacher. We want everyone to trust in Christ and Christ alone. That's what God wants. There is no greater and obvious place to see God in Jesus than the cross of Calvary. That is the clearest place we see him. As this messianic figure, this king, prophet, and priest was prophesied throughout all the Old Testament that he would die, make atonement for sin, and yet live and be given a kingdom. The cross is where we see God and Christ. It shows the epic weight and seriousness of sin. Sin must be dealt with. They talked about that in Romans 3 last week. Yet, it is also the cross where we see the love of God. To give us his only son, to die for us, even while we're still sinners, this is the cross we must proclaim. And I would ask all of you, in some way or another in your personal life, please, we've got to tell people about this message. People will reject it, but some will accept it. How much should we have to hate someone not to share the gospel of Christ crucified with them? We have to proclaim the cross. So if you're already a believer, don't treat the cross like something it's we deserve. Kill your sin. Be more like Christ. Live a life of gratitude as you grow. It's cheap grace to say, I'm not going to change. Don't treat the cross like it's something we deserve. Live a cruciform life. If you're not a believer, we would all plead with you, don't treat the cross like a mere piece of history we deserve nothing from God but judgment and yet God still loves us and has redeemed us at the cross which means all boasting must be in the cross of Christ boast in the Lord this is where we see God and Jesus at the crucifixion if we can help you in any of those ways whether if you need prayers or if you're not yet forgiven and in Christ we'd invite you to come forward now as we stand and sing